Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the rain that you've given us. Thankful that you could bring us here together to uh, gather together to worship you. We're thankful for the, the special time of instruction you give us that we call Sunday school. We ask that you'd bless our time, that your spirit would help us to understand, uh, to learn, and to know to love, and, and to trust and obey uh, your word, Father, as it is the, the revelation that you've given us uh, to know your will and your purposes for us. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, as you can see, Dan's not here today. They're off on an uh, excursion for, uh, to get a better trained at biblical counseling. So he asked if I would uh, pull the class together and do a, a single class. And what we're doing in our class is we're looking at the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession. And I've noticed in that class we have a whole lot of people in there. And uh, as I taught more and more, people started coming over here. And I think it was the topic. It's not for everybody. We're kind of technical and looking at candidacy at a very deep level. I understand it. It's fine. But I thought, well, if I'm going to teach the whole class, uh, let's do something a little bit less technical and not just keep diving into candidacy like the way they are. So we're going to be where we were. So what we're going to do is look ahead a little bit to the, the idea of the preservation of the Scripture. Canonicity basically says, uh, how do we know the books of the Bible are the books of the Bible? What is the historical process that the church went through to gather these books? What qualifications did they have? What was the history behind it? Um, and we've looked at that in great detail. We've looked at a couple theories uh, of canonicity. One called the, uh, the two main ones are the intrinsic and the extrinsic. The in extrinsic says that uh, the canon was forced upon the church, that the church was kind of going along happily ever after with this oral tradition and a group of, of misogynist, uh, heteronormative, uh, binary men came along and tried to rein the church in. And they did that by imposing this canon on the church, the, these phony documents. And uh, the intrinsic model, which is what we believe, believes that no, the church, when Christ came and brought new revelation, uh, explaining uh, the old revelation, fulfilling the promises that were made in the Old Testament uh, to the people of God, there would have been a natural desire for a new canon for them to add to the Old Testament. They wouldn't have to be forced. It would have been part of the, the church's early DNA to gather these books together about Christ and, and his apostles and put them into a, a canon and add them to the existing canon. It may have taken a, a couple hundred years to do that, but it would have been a natural outflow of the church. So in getting into that, we got into a lot, lot of discussion, a lot of scholarly uh, discussion and so forth. And uh, what I want to do today, again, is look at the preservation. How do we know, okay, once we know that those books were gathered, how do we know that they're the actual right documents? How do we know that they weren't corrupted in some way? If you look at our confession, it says this, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God, the God, of, God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of writing was the most general known of all, nation, of all the nations, being immediately inspired by God. So what is it saying here? Is that those original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts were those which were inspired by God. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, those things were copied, right? We don't have those originals. They're, they're long gone. And we may discover them someday, but right now uh, we haven't had them for who knows how long. The first time a, a person took Paul's letter and, and copied it out and sent it to somebody else or took it home to read it, 
that was a copy, it was a duplicate. And the problem with that is it introduces mistakes. Every time you copy a Bible or copy a document, you're gonna, there's gonna be differences and changes and mistakes. So the question is, how do we know what we have reflects accurately what was written in the Hebrew and Greek? And there's a number of ways people deal with this. Uh, some radical ideas. One group would be the King James only people who believe that, no, the inspiration doesn't take place in the Old Testament or the original uh, manuscripts. The inspiration takes place in the King James Bible, that whoever translated that, and we have many of their names, God inspired them to take this perfect Bible and give it to us. And when they go, these people go and do missionary work, they translate the King James Bible into the native languages. So that's what we call King James onlyism. That's, that's very prevalent in many forms of fundamentalism. Then there's another group that, that's called uh, the Texas Receptus, and many Reformed people hold to this view. They think that the, the Texas Receptus, this is the manuscript behind the King James Version, so they take it and move it one step back, that that is the inspired word of God, that is what God has actually preserved. Even though they can't explain what happened to the thousands of years before that, before the Texas Receptus was created, because it is a document that was made, and we can trace historically when it was made. And uh, it's often called the received text, as if the reformers received this and gave it their approval. Uh, that's another way people deal with this. Uh, another way, a third way, is what's called reasoned eclecticism, which is what, what I hold to and what the elders hold to here, and that is we have thousands of, of manuscripts, we're going to see these manuscripts in a little bit here, that we know are, hold what was actually written. And first of all, we, we acknowledge that whatever changes are there, and we'll show this today, they're very insignificant changes. Uh, we're going to see it's like 99.5%. So the idea that the Bible was corrupted, uh, it, it's just not there. So what we do in reason eclecticism, we, we say, okay, we know we have like 99.9% .9 of it. How do we find that 0.5%? That's all we're doing in textual criticism is looking for that, those tiny differences. And we'll see most of those differences are simply differences in spelling. Uh, differences in word order. Remember, they had no dictionaries back then, so things were spelt differently. So the changes that we have are very minor and don't affect any particular doctrine of the scripture. So, but there's still that issue, well, well, how do we know? How do we know that they are to accurately reflect what was written? And, and one way to, to look at this, to tell, is by looking at other documents, ancient documents, that scholars around the world look at and see and recognize, yes, these are ancient documents written thousands of years ago, sometimes before Christ, and we think these documents are accurate. We think these documents are uncorrupt. And if we can look at the New Testament and, and compare it to those documents and say, well, you know, if you say that these things are, are, are corrupt, that these are, are okay, then why not the New Testament when the evidence is, will show is far greater in its purity than the evidence that we have for these documents. So that's what we're going to do today is look at, take the New Testament, look at how many manuscripts we have, and then compare it to manuscripts of other ancient documents to see that anybody that claims that the New Testament isn't accurate pretty much has to wipe out all of ancient history because we base much of our ancient history on these documents. So if the New Testament is greater, more purity than these, then we can certainly with confidence say yes, whatever process was done in the copying of these documents, preserve that text so that we can trust it and, and call it the word God gave to his people. Now to do this, let's make a scenario. Um, 
here to sort of illustrate what, what, what most of the scholarly world believes happened to the New Testament. Um, let's say you're, you're a very greedy, twisted, uh, manipulated, uh, power-hungry tyrant. And uh, you're looking for your next uh, thing that you can attack, that you can take over and leech money from or extract power from. And you notice that there's a that this band of people, a small group of people, uh, call themselves Christians. They follow this person, Jesus. They're, they're very enthusiastic. They're very excited, evangelical about their faith. Uh, they're much different from the rest of the world around them. And you take notice of them. And you think, you know, I'd really like to take over that group. I'd like to rule it and control it and use it to twist it and, and use it for my own power and to promote my own uh, personal wealth and, and being. And so you think, well, how can I do that? How can I infiltrate this group and take it over? And so you realize you can't do it alone, so you call a, a lot of your evil cohorts together and you get together for a meeting. And you, you have a plan of attack. You're going to get to know this group better, to know how you can infiltrate them and take them over. So you have one group that's going to go in and become members of this group and learn firsthand on the ground floor how they function and what they do. And you have another group that will just study their origin and their history kind of from a 20,000-foot perspective. So everybody goes out and, and does all their work, and you come together six months later, and you, can, you, you draw your conclusions and, and make a line of attack. And what the people that go into the church say, and those who observe it from the outside, is that they notice that this, this church has groups of documents that they use. And these documents are very important in, in directing the life of the church. And you know, there's two groups of them. There's an older, more ancient group of books that they have. They call the Old Testament, or they actually call the Scriptures at that time. There was no Old and New Testament this early. So they have this uh, book they call the Scriptures. And... You're not going to touch that. That is rooted in ancient history. Uh, they have translations of it. They know exactly what books belong to it. They quote from it constantly. But there's another group of documents that they're, they're not quite sure of, yet they have them. And different churches have different groups of these documents. Uh, one man by the name of Paul. Some churches have all of his epistles. Uh, there's these other group of documents called the, the Gospels that they put gr a great deal of respect in and use them greatly. Uh, some churches have all four of them. Some churches have one or two of them. Remember, there, there's no... New Testament at this time. You collected different books from different churches or different people. So they said now this second group is still somewhat flexible. There's still not a definite number of what these books are. They're still gathering them and analyzing them and assessing whether or not they should be a part of this, this, this second book that they're building here. And if we can get in there and get a hold of those books and change them and twist them a little bit to our ends and our purposes, then we can have control of this group. And so you plan on how you're going to do that. And you know, that, that may sound stupid, but that's what most of the scholars that study the New Testament, the secular scholars and many of the liberal ones, believe happened in the New Testament. That they had these, this basic oral tradition that was somewhat reflected in these uh, documents. And somebody came in and got the documents, manipulated them, changed them, and brought them back to the church. And that now directed the church to the current state that it is right now. Um, and many liberals think that the original church, church was uh, accepted homosexuals, uh, had women teachers, women were prominent leaders in the church, had women apostles. And everything that liberals uh, like today, they pretty much read back into the New Testament. And when they can't find it there, they say, well, it was corrupted. It was changed to, to meet the, the heteronormative uh, patriarchal system that it represents today. So the question is, did that happen? Now, also ask, what would it take to do that? Well, it'd take a couple things. 
first of all, you would have to get a hold of all of the documents and you'd have to change them. And you can imagine how they change them. They don't want to make it too radical. You know, let's take Jesus. We, we, uh, yeah, he was a laid back guy. He ate with sinners. He uh, helped prostitutes. He, he lambasted the religious leaders of the day. You know, that's all good stuff. We want to keep all that in there, how he loves sinners and, and all that. But let, let's make him, give him a little bit of edgier side. Let's make him cast people into hell for certain reasons. Let's say a man comes to a, a, a function and he's not dressed properly. Let's have Jesus throw this man into outer darkness. Or let's say uh, Jesus goes on a trip and he gives a certain number of his servants uh, a certain amount of money. And when he sees that money increased upon its return, he rewards those who increase that money. Uh, the poor guy who buries it gets thrown into outer darkness. Now that, that reflects the Jesus that we want to see. Uh, a bunch of virgins throw them into hell for not having enough oil in their lamps. Th those are things that we, we kind of want to insert into this while leaving Jesus pretty much the same as a nice laid-back guy who, who loves sinners and, and helps the oppressed. So we need to do that. We need to get these documents and change them. And then also what we need to do is we need to destroy the old ones. We need to get rid of them. Because if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, th this Gospel of Matthew... Uh, Mine doesn't have that in here, or there's a difference between us. Your letters of Paul are different from the ones that I have. So there has to be, all the documents have to be gathered, and it has to be destroyed so that there's no evidence whatsoever of these documents existing, so people won't make a comparison between the two. Now, it sounds like a, a realistic goal, right? And, and keep in mind that these documents are, are scattered all over the world. So if that were to happen, let's say you had that, that scheme, what would we do? to stop it, or what would have to happen to make it impossible? Well, a couple things. Number one, uh, as we said, the more manuscripts there are, the more difficult it's going to be. If there's, you know, maybe each church, each city has a, a group of documents, um, it wouldn't be too hard, but if these things are just scattered everywhere, if churches have them, if people are copying them down and taking them home and keeping their own private versions of them, and many of the manuscripts we have are exactly that, people just writing it down and wanting to have a copy of it. Um, sometimes there are uh, scriptoriums where professional people write these documents out. They're trained specially to write and to listen and to hear and to copy. Um, so the more of these documents we have, the more difficult our task is going to be. And also, uh, the more they're spread out. If you have maybe a million documents located in one city, uh, that's going to be tough. But if you have uh, a million documents scattered throughout three different continents, it's going to make it very difficult, almost impossible, to go to these different places and gather these documents. So the geographical distribution of them uh, is going to be uh, difficult to overcome if that's the case. So that, that's what they'd have to overcome to do this. This is what we'll have to stop to do this. And also another thing, too, is that the, the time between the original documents and the earliest documents, the, the smaller that time is, the less time there is for mischief. If, there, if they, the documents were completed, let's say, in 100 AD, and the first manuscripts we have are 1000 AD, there's a whole lot of time in there to mess with these documents. There's nothing really to compare them to, but if you can bring that time up to very, very close to the original writings, then that, that 100 years in there, it's going to be really, or 200 years, it's going to be very difficult to manipulate those documents. There's just not a lot of time to do it. And when we compare the New Testament with other documents. That's what we find, is that these other documents have long periods of time before we find the first manuscripts of them. Where we look at the New Testament, it's very close to the original date. And also, the number of manuscripts we have is far greater 
than any other manuscripts, like all the ancient writings combined. If you put all their manuscripts together, uh, they don't even come close to the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. So that early date and that number of manuscripts are, are two key things we want to look for that would make it virtually impossible to uh, destroy these or manipulate these documents in any way. Now, again, let, let's do that. Let's go through some of the uh, ancient documents that existed. And I think I lost my mouse. I think it's over here. And just compare and, and see what it looks like when we compare them to the New Testament. And many of you have seen this. Anybody seen this comparison before? Anybody read like uh, uh, Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands Verdict? He has a lot of this kind of stuff in there. But it's, it's very popular to see on the internet. So I'm not coming up with this. It's very common to this, uh, these demonstrations here. Let's see. See it over there, too? Yep. All right, perfect. Amazing, that works. So here's uh, the preservation of the New Testament. Uh, the more documents we have, uh, the, great, the more difficult it's going to be to collect these documents, change them in a way that's not detectable. Also, the more that they're spread throughout the world uh, is going to make it more difficult to go out and get them and rein them all in and destroy them. Um, let's see. Uh, the third, fourth point here, uh, if there's a long, a great distance between the original writings of the manuscripts and the time we find our first manuscripts, first copies, uh, that again allows a lot of time for mischief, for uh, manipulation to occur. But if it's a shorter time, let's say under 100 years, there's a lot less time for people to get these things and make the changes that they want to make to them. It's just kind of reviewing verbal, uh, visually what we... So, so let's take one, one man, a man by the name of Pliny. He was a, uh, a, a Roman uh, historian, uh, wrote a famous book called Naturalist Historia. He sort of got it, wrote the first encyclopedia. That is like the first encyclopedia, and every encyclopedia ever written has sort of taken its uh, foundation from what this guy did. A very famous uh, Roman author and writer. Uh, he, he, he wrote his books about 100 AD, and the earliest manuscript we have is 850 AD, so there's 750 years difference between the time he wrote his work and the time that we have the first manuscript. So that's the first, first uh, variable here. The second one is how many of them do we have? How many of the manuscripts do we have? We have two copies of this, two copies. Now, no historian, no scholar is ever going to say these two copies don't accurately reflect what Pliny actually wrote. They're going to acknowledge, yet yeah, they, they are. There, there's no change in those documents. Uh, let's take a look at Plato. You're probably more familiar with Plato. Um, wrote, he was actually the teacher of Aristotle. Wrote 425 BC. Uh, the earliest manuscript we have of his is in 110 AD. That's about, I think my math might not be right there, but that's more than, more than 100, 1,200 years. So that, that's probably 1,300, 1,400 years uh, difference between the time Plato wrote and the first manuscript that we have. And again, we've all heard of Plato. We all know how famous he is. What about the number of manuscripts? Okay. Plato jumps up to seven. So we have seven actual manuscripts of his writings, but there's a 14 or 1,500 year difference uh, between those writings. What about Aristotle, who, again, was the, the pupil of 
Plato, the actual uh, teacher of Alexander the Great. Uh, earliest works we have, or he, he wrote 350 BC. Earliest manuscript is about 110 AD. That's 1400 years difference between the time he wrote to the first manuscripts that we have. If you look at the number of copies, we have 49, quite a bit, when you compare it to, to Plato and to Pliny. So 49 copies of these documents that we have. Demosthenes. <coughs> uh, he was a, a Greek uh, historian, Greek uh, politician. Um, 400 BC to 110 AD, so about 1,100 years. We have eight copies of his writings. Uh, Herodotus, the famous Greek historian. Uh, a lot of our Greek history is based on what Herodotus wrote. So if we can't trust his writings, uh, we pretty much have no Greek history other than what we discover on, on pottery and things like that. Um, 450 BC, he wrote. Uh, 900 AD is the earliest manuscript, so that's 1,300 years difference between the time he wrote to the first manuscripts that we have. Uh, we have eight copies of his manuscripts. Thucydides, another Greek historian, a little bit after um, Herodotus, he wrote the Peloponnesian Wars. All the stories we have about Athens and Greece come from uh, Thucydides. Uh, he wrote 400 BC. First manuscript we have of his is 950 AD, and uh, that's 1,300 years difference. Again, you're seeing kind of the average here, about 1,000 years and more. Uh, we have eight copies of his writings, like the Peloponnesian Wars and such. Anybody see this material before? Okay. I said very common when, when you're defending the, the New Testament. Accuracy. So eight copies, uh, earliest being about 1,300 years after they were written. Caesar, uh, his Gallic Wars, he wrote a history of his invasion of Gaul or France. Um, happened in about 120 BC. Earliest copies are 950 AD, um, about 1,000 years difference. How many copies do we have? We have 10 copies of his writings. And much of our history of the war comes from Caesar. Uh, Tatticus. Another uh, Greek historian, uh, 20 copies of his writings. He wrote about the, uh, uh, a lot about the German history. It's, we no longer have it, but he wrote a lot, a lot of history and a lot of uh, writings about politics and stuff. Uh, 20 copies, 1,000 years after the original writing. Uh, Homer. Now, Homer is important because Homer, look at the difference between Homer. He wrote uh, about 900 AD. Earliest manuscripts we have is about three or 400 AD. So there's actually only 500 years between Homer's writings and the first manuscripts that we have. Tell how popular Homer was. Again, Homer wrote Odyssey and Iliad, famous Greek poet. So he's in a league of his own compared to these other guys. 500 years, that's really short compared to the 1100, 1200, 1400 year difference between these other writers. And it's the same when we look at the number of copies. We have 643 copies of Homer. So that's a, again, puts him in a league of his own. So nobody's going to ever doubt that the copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey that Homer wrote are actual reflections of, or accurate reflections of, those original writings that he did. So th that's sort of the standard of the ancient writings is Homer, 630 co 643 copies and about uh, 500 years after the original writing. So what about the New Testament? How does the New Testament fit into here? Let me check out my time. Well, it's a little bit, we could say it, it's pretty much in a league of its own. The New Testament was written um, from 
50 AD to about 110 AD. John's Gospel of Revelation were probably written about 100 years after, uh, written about 100 AD. So we start with the Gospels, uh, books like Galatians and Thessalonians, very early, going all the way to 100 AD with the Gospel of John and Revelation. Uh, the first manuscripts we have are about 130 years, or 130 AD, which is less than 100 years after the original writings. So it's not 500, not 1100, not 1200, less than 100 years after the writings, we start to see documents reflecting those writings. Now these early ones are, are simply what co are called fragments. They're little pieces of, of documents that fell off that survived, but we can actually use them to start comparing uh, the New Testament to see if it's if that looks like what it does later on in the, the manuscript, the copying process. So, a hundred years later, we start to see manuscripts being produced of these original documents. Then the question is, how many of these documents? Well, let's review real quick. Um, we've got again, Pliny, 750 years, uh, Plato, just look at the 750, 1200, 1400, 800, 13, all the way down to 500. Copies, we don't go over a thousand copies. And as far as the accuracy, when we compare these manuscripts, uh, what kind of differences are there? Uh, the first one is don't even bother trying. There's so few manuscripts, don't even worry about trying. It's not going to matter whether they're accurate or not. Uh, Homer, there's actually enough to start doing some, some comparison between the, uh, the different documents that we have. Because one way to tell is how different are these documents. Uh, if ones are, uh, have you know, major, major changes or, or there's 50 different copies with 50 different versions, then there's going to be problems. Well, Homer, uh, all the manuscripts are 95% identical. That's pretty good accuracy, really pretty good accuracy. So you can pretty much trust that there any changes are probably going to be spelling, uh, word reverses. Remember, there's no a word order in the ancient Greek or Hebrew. So uh, there's a lot of ways you could change things without really affecting the text or the meaning, but still it would be counted as a uh, discrepancy. Now when we add the New Testament, we're again, we're 100 years less, or 100, within 100 years of the original writings, we have 5,600 copies of, or manuscripts of the New Testament. And when you compare their accuracy, they're about 99.5% identical. Again, even the changes are very, very small, minor changes. There are some places where uh, there are verses missing, but we can pretty much determine how those verses at, were added to later documents. Let's say we have a document here. Um, there's a document called the Byzantine text. And these uh, originate around, uh, I'm, I'm maybe off here, about 1200, let's say 900, 1200 AD. Okay, a, a collection of manuscripts. We have so many manuscripts actually, we actually put them in collections. Uh, we collect them into different groups based on the region and their age. So the Byzantine are, are the latter ones. We have what are called the Alexandrian texts, which are the early ones. And we'll see documents here or verses in certain places that appear here but don't appear here. But when we look at the manuscripts in between, we can actually see, okay, this was added at this point by a scribe. We can actually detect that in most cases. Usually what'll happen is you'll have a, uh, a manuscript that'll have that phrase here, it'll be, have that text here, and then maybe 100 years later, you'll have the text here, but this verse will be written out on the margin, and a little note will point to here saying, yeah, some manuscripts have this out here. And then the latter ones will actually have it inserted into the text. So we can actually trace these documents, how they were actually manipulated and changed by the, uh, by the copiers. So even when there's major changes, it's pretty easy to find out how that change got there because we just have so many 
thousands of manuscripts to compare. Uh, any questions or comments about that? Now we also have, um, these are some of the early uh, uh, canons. I spelled early, it's wrong there. Uh, and these are complete Bibles right here. Maybe there's a, a one or two books missing or an extra book. But uh, all these books, if you compare them, they all contain the New Testament itself. Uh, these go from uh, earliest ones, or the Matorian Fragment. I shouldn't have put that there. That doesn't belong there. That's a list of books. Also, uh, the Easter Letter is a list of books. But these other three are actual Bibles that we have. Uh, Vaticanus, that's 300 to uh, 325 A.D., so very, very early. Again, not just a fragment, but a complete Bible that we possess that can be compared with the fragments to see if it is actually uh, reflects what was written earlier. We have the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, 330 A.D. to 360. You ever hear the story of the Sinaiticus? It's a great story. There's a guy named uh, Tischendorf who was a uh, 19th century uh, German scholar who wanted to find out uh, how close he could get to the original New Testament that, that he could. He was looking for ancient manuscripts. And in those days, uh, he would travel to um, uh, monasteries. Monasteries often had very, very old libraries where they would just throw documents and leave them there for, for centuries. So he would get permission to go to these monasteries and go through their libraries looking for ancient texts. And he was in this one in Egypt somewhere, I think it was, and he's getting ready to go to bed, and one of the monks is starting a fire for him. And, and he pulls out these uh, manuscripts, the, these ancient documents, and he could tell what they were. And he's rolling these things up and throwing them in the fire to start the fire. And he says, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And he grabs these things from the guy and starts looking at them. And saying, these, these are ancient documents. You don't want to throw these away. And the monk says, oh, we got a whole room full of these things. You ought to come look at them. So uh, the next day, he takes Tischendorf back to this room, and he's, he just sees this massive pile of ancient documents, and one of them was the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, the most one of the most significant New Testament documents. We have that witnesses to the accuracy of the New Testament. That's how it was discovered. The guy noticed a bunch of things being thrown on a fire, and stopped the guy, and the guy told him, "Oh, got a bunch more of these things back here." And uh, originally, they, they wouldn't. I think I can't remember if it was Sinaiticus or, or Vaticanus. He, they wouldn't let him uh, take it home. So he had to actually sit down and read it. This may have been the Vaticanus or somebody else. But um, So what he did was he would go and, and read it every day and then come home and write down what he, what he read. And when he was done, after a couple months, uh, it was like 95% accurate. In fact, it was so accurate when it was published, uh, the monks said, well, we might as well have it anyway. You got it pretty much 95% of what we have. So a uh, very brilliant man, and uh, very, it's one of those things that just completely uh, lit up the world of New Testament scholarship as far as the, the ancient manuscripts. So uh, that's the story behind the Codus Sadiaticus. Um, now, we also have more than just um, manuscripts. We have other ways that we can tell if the New Testament is correct or not, or if it's accurate. One is... Um, I was going to print this out. I'll, I'll print this out and make a copy of this. I, was, I got here a little bit late today, but uh, I really thought we would have one um, monitor so you guys wouldn't be able to see this. So I wanted to hand this out so people could have this, but uh, if you want a copy of it, let me know. Uh, another thing that helps us understand uh, how accurate the New Testament is as well is not just the thousands of manuscripts, but um, we have uh, translations as well. 
Uh, we have 19,000 different translations of the New Testament, uh, Syriac, Coptic, uh, Aramaic. We even have some uh, Gothic, German versions. And some of these are very, very early. For example, the uh, Syrian uh, Peshitta, P-I-P-E-S-H-I-T-T-A, uh, goes all the way back to the second century. Now, th these are our translations, but when you, you can get an idea of how accurate they are and how much they reflect the Greek uh, by back translating some of the more controversial texts. And, and they're very, very accurate. They reflect those early manuscripts that we possess. And another thing this does it, with these different um, translations is it helps us answer that third issue of geographical distribution. Remember, if these things are spread throughout the world, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for the, these uh, uh, scheming men to get all the documents and destroy them. Because if you have a bunch of early translations that are different from yours, then that's going to raise questions as well. Well, these different translations all over the world show that the New Testament was spread everywhere almost immediately. As soon as it was copied, as soon as the gospel spread, uh, and we know it was spread very early. Paul says that you know it was spread all over the world um, when they went, they took their documents with them, and often they would translate those, and we have some of those early, early documents. Also, another interesting fact, too, is that we have uh, over 85,000 quotations from the Bible in the early church fathers, the first, second, and third generation, or actually, yeah, second, third generation, so up to about maybe uh, 250 AD, we have 85,000 quotes of the New Testament from the church fathers. In fact, some people say, uh, and I, I don't really believe this is true, that we could reconstruct uh, the New Testament just with the quotes of the, of the early fathers, and we, we probably could, but it would be difficult, and it wouldn't be a very good translation, but we've got Tons. We don't know if they were paraphrasing or if they were quoting word for word. And most times uh, they were paraphrasing. In fact, we have examples in the New Testament uh, of paraphrasing of the Old Testament. So it's a very common thing, not only in Old Testament or New Testament, but also in these uh, church fathers. So it'd be difficult to go back and, and accurately reconstruct it. But it just shows us the accuracy that what these men actually uh, believed and how much they revered the word, how much it spread, how much it was used, which all makes it far more difficult for somebody to come in, get control control of it and manipulate it in some significant way. Again, what's, what's amazing is the amazing agreement of these texts. Uh, even the church fathers, where, where there's disputes, uh, we can go back to them at times and say, okay, yeah, he, here's what uh, Ignatius quoted, and it looks like he's quoting this manuscript right here. And when we look at the, uh, the different text types, what did I do with my pencil? I drop it, I drop it. We see the Alexandrian text is much, much earlier. In fact, the, uh, the Sinaiticus... The Sinaiticus is uh, the early text. It represents the Alexandrian text. So this is the early text. And the theory is, is that the early text is going to be the most accurate ones. Because it's going to be, as time goes on, more and more uh, discrepancies are going to be introduced uh, until you have a lot of, not, ne not necessarily significant ones, but you have a lot of differences. And when we look at the church fathers, uh, most times they, their quotations reflect the Alexandrian text. So they, they were using this text right here and not the, this later text, which, which makes sense because they were quoting from it very early. Um, any questions or comments? Yeah. In, um, when Mike and I read in the morning, for a while we were using different translations just so we could have discussion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'd come across a, a verse where the other Bible didn't even have it. Yeah. And one would have it and was like, where are you? It's like, there it is, it's right there. And then his Bible will say, some manuscripts say that this is here, but we left it out. Mm -hmm. and, but it never, 
never have we come across anything where the um, where it mattered mm -hmm. of what the outcome of scripture is, which is exactly you know. exactly yeah. The, the main ones that where it occurs is the um, the ending of Mark where you've got the handling of snakes and things like that. Uh, that that's missing from, uh, if you look at the Alexandrian manuscripts, they don't have that, the Byzantine ones do. Uh, also the, um, the pericope about the adulterous woman, where uh, they, they bring the adulterous woman to Christ and, and accuse her, that's also missing from these early manuscripts, but it's in these right here. What's also called the um, Johannian common, common, I'm not pronouncing it right, there's a, a Verse in John chapter 5 that talks about uh, the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Or I can't remember the exact verse, but, but that's in the Byzantine text where it's not in the Alexandrian text. And but what's interesting about that is when Erasmus, when he created his first Greek New Testament, he had about six or seven manuscripts that he used, and they all were from this period. They're all like 14th, 15th century, 16th century manuscripts. And... Uh, he knew that, that he had enough knowledge uh, of the manuscripts that he knew that that, that verse in First John was not there. And he wrote a lengthy explanation of why it wasn't there. And the Pope basically said, put it in there or, you know, we'll do whatever we do to people that don't listen to us. And so he put it in there reluctantly with a whole commentary explaining why it shouldn't be there. And as we go back in, in history, we, we learn yeah, how that actually got added to that. And it was actually put in there in the Latin Vulgate. And from there, it came into other Greek texts. But uh, yeah, most of those verses we can track and see, okay, yeah, uh, at this point, maybe in the fifth century, it was in, in the column, in the margin, uh, and there was a note next to it saying some manuscripts have this, some don't. And eventually, as it progressed, it was added to the full-blown text. And as far as how we deal with that, oh, and another reason, too, the reason it was in some and not in others, or explained in some and not explained in others. Uh, so you have three things, basically, back up a little bit, three, three ways that these things are handled. Uh, they're there and no explanation given. Uh, they're there, but a little explanation said, hey, this doesn't belong here. It may not belong here. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, but you have to kind of read a little footnote to see that. Uh, sometimes it's blocked off in like a little uh, brackets. Sometimes it's just not there with no explanation. Now, why? Italicized. Pardon? Sometimes it's italicized. Yes, italicized. It just indicated that it's different. Now, why is that? Why are these different things? Well, if you're a reformed person, if you're King James onlyist, okay, there's no question. That's there. You're not even going to mark it off. It, it, this is the inspired text. We're not even going to make any explanation for that. If you hold to the Textus Receptus, the Textus Receptus now it is the text uh, slightly modified that the King James Version was built with. It, it's pretty much a modification of Erasmus's text that he came up with. Uh, if you're using that, then you're going to have it there and maybe an explanation or maybe not. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the, um, what's the, like new RSV or RSV revised standard. They basically are Texas Receptus. So I'd need to see how they deal with it. It's going to be there. Maybe marked is not belonging or questionable. Probably not. Uh, if you do a uh, new American standard, uh, the early ones probably marked it off and italicized it with a note. Uh, the latter ones are just keeping it out altogether. Not even put it in there. Maybe a little note saying uh, there's some more here. But uh, as time goes on, more people understand it, then you're seeing those texts just being completely removed with maybe a little explanation of saying there's more more here. Um, so yeah, that's a story of those. There's, I think there's only three of them that are really significant. And and the reason it's, it's off of Mark is um, a lot of the collections of the Bibles were Mark would be the last. 
and the last page would be the one that falls off. Uh, another example of this is Revelation. One problem Erasmus had was in Revelation, you didn't have the last page of Revelation of any of these manuscripts. So he had to actually make something up. He had to take the Latin and translate it into Greek. And when you compare that Greek to the other manuscripts that have that text, it's not the same, it's different. And uh, the reason Revelation, that page wasn't there, because Revelation is at the end of a book, and chances are the last page of a book is going to be the one that gets lost or, or corrupted. So, and then um, there's that don't add to or take away from verse. Yeah, well, he, he wanted to have a, a, a manuscript, and so he, this is the best I can do. And, and he, so, yeah, I mean, to have a, a Greek manuscript without anything, and he thought he was doing okay. I mean, yeah, I'll just, and it, it's not like it's different. It still means the same thing. It's still understandable. You're not going to read it and say, uh, even if you compared a, a Texas Receptus version of that with the actual Greek, you're not going to see a big difference. But there are words in there uh, that aren't in any other manuscript because Erasmus basically made them up. Not made them up, but translated them. Any questions or comments? What time we got? Okay, well, we got two minutes, so... Um, Hope this didn't hurt your brains too much. <laughs> but anyway, I thought this would be more interesting than getting into the depths of, of paganicity and things like that. So, all right. Well, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to come up and ask me. And you've got to uh, let you go two minutes. So enjoy your day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one quick question. Sure. How important would you say it is for, as Christians, for us to learn the original languages? Because ultimately, we are still trusting English translations or translations of the original. Yeah, I, I don't think it's important. I, I think it's important that, that pastors have some knowledge of it. Uh, and even pastors, I mean, who are they trusting? They're trusting people that wrote the dictionaries. We're, we're all trusting some secular scholarship along the way, uh, no matter what. Um, so I, I don't, if you want to do it, that's fine. But uh, there are ways that you can teach people to use commentaries, use Greek lexicons, where you don't need to have all the details of, of Greek and Hebrew. If you want to do it, fine. But I don't, you know, I don't, uh, Justin and I, neither of us really ever refer to the Greek. Rarely do we do that. Uh, we think we can explain everything in English. I'll do it sometime for illustrations or, you know, because uh, the, the word uh, power, dynamis, is our word for dynamite. It can give, it can help people understand the word better. But uh, just, this is an arrow asked. Arrow, arrow is active participle, and it means this in the Greek. I'm not going to do that, and I don't think it's necessary. So, yeah, I don't think the average person needs that. If you're going to you know, dig into the scriptures and study it and defend it uh, at a certain level, then it, it's helpful. But uh, I don't think it's Spurgeon couldn't read a lick of Greek or Hebrew. Uh, Augustine couldn't read any uh, Greek, just spoke Latin, no Hebrew. So a lot of great men have done much for the church not knowing the original languages. So, And... Um, and one more question, though, before we go. I forgot about this. Um, so we've got this hundred years here. And like I said, a lot of mischief can occur during this time when everything is being transmitted orally and those books aren't being spread um, or not spread completely. So the question is, how do we show that the New Testament in that hundred years before we have manuscripts wasn't corrupted? And for that, you need to come to my class. And, uh, <laughs> Anyway, thanks for your attention. I appreciate it.